Welcome to Happy Times and Places, in which I, pedantic Doctor Who anorak Toby Haydoke, ask a special guest to choose a story for me, and I have to see if I can guess what their favourite things about this story are. Okay, so I am Andrew Cartmel. For my sins, I script-edited Doctor Who. I did all of the Sylvester stuff, all of the Seventh Doctor, so I did three years. And I was very struck by Dragonfire. Well, let's not hang around... Well, let's not hang around too long, because we need to resolve the cliffhanger to episode one of Dragonfire. So this is episode two... And in whichever form you're watching it, please, please press play now. Um, it's going to be interesting to see if this camera, which is looking like it's on the Titanic, uh, stays up for the whole of this. Uh, it's as wobbly as the Doctor's motivation for slides, hanging off his umbrella uh, at the edge of an ice crevasse. Um, nonetheless... I am here to accentuate the positive, especially as the person that has chosen this adventure for us to enjoy at my house. Hello, you're very welcome here. Um, is Andrew Cartmel, who script edited the show. And I guess the argument that this period, this season anyway, because I think the production values drastically improved in seasons 25 and season 26, is whether it is correct to be very ambitious on the budget that they have. And my instincts are always to say yes. Um, there's a phrase in Doctor Who, the discontinuity guide, says something like, you've got, to, you've got to admire lofty ambitions. They're talking about the web planet. And I think you do have to admire lofty ambitions. I think when they wrote this, they thought it would look like Alien, or they had Alien, the film, in or Aliens in their, certainly later on in episode three, Aliens in their mind's eye. Um, and they got this, and the gulf between the two is larger in some sequences than it is in others. But I remember a com talking to a comedian, and apologies if I've said this in another commentary, but I don't think so, because I've only, I've only really thought about it recently and he said it to me a while ago fine comic called Jeff Innocent who's a very cockney sort of geezer guy but he's he likes old telly not he's not a card carrying geek like like us I love Ace's response to the killer alien and, and, the, and the sparks hang around on the screen don't they they burn themselves onto the screen yeah uh, um, and he said well he said, the problem with television now is that they're too busy trying to convince you that it's real when I watched telly as a kid uh, they you know they just assumed you knew that so what he was basically saying was you know yeah Juliet Bravo didn't look real on you know videotape on an obvious set of a police station but you but you but you accepted that that's what the program makers wanted you to do and it's not a victory of yours to go I can see through this artifice you you haven't won anything except that you've not therefore been as receptive to the storyline and the performances and what the, the, the writer is trying to tell you. you. You don't win by catching the programme makers out. And I think we try so hard these days to, to, to show how clever we are. I, I say we, I mean, I mean those people that don't like telly like this. Uh, uh, modern people. Um, it seems, you know, and, and, and TV, television critics who, 
have a bad reputation, I think, with good reason, largely. I, I know any number of eloquent, articulate Doctor Who fans, some very young ones, who would make te better television critics than the ones currently writing in national newspapers. Um, they, they can write and they aren't quite so snide or keen to show how clever they are. They actually have a joy in, in something. Um, but it seems to be to, to be a television critic. There are honourable exceptions. Um, uh, is again to do that sort of very dismissive thing. And as somebody... No, I don't want to sort of separate myself out there. There's lots of us have made stuff, but as you know, as somebody that does this sort of creative stuff, find that the glib way that you know stuff can be dismissed that's had a lot of hard work and skill put into it and doesn't always work. Um, uh, I, my, I am still more on the side of the people <laughs> putting in the work uh, than those sort of sniping from the sidelines. Even that said, I you know the bits that I picked out on episode one that I struggled with, I genuinely did struggle with, despite trying my hardest not to. I, I'm into my <laughs> Sylvester McCoy. Uh, is is a great clown. He's a great physical performer, um, and and is always trying to do something. <laughs> Sometimes, whether he should be or not, that that was funny. That was funny. Ah. Uh, Again, I think to buy that sort of humour, you have to be dead straight elsewhere, which is why Edward Peel is such a boon. Um, and, and Tony Selby is sort of does both. He 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 has the lightness of touch to be the charismatic rogue, but he also, you know, knows when to stop messing about and and you know give it a bit of guts and drama. Uh, I like Glitz. I'm rather sad Glitz never came back again. Um, he was very much a favourite character of, of mine, uh, even though I th he was supposed to be a character called Razorback, wasn't he? Uh, that's right. Um, uh, and, and having something set on an ice planet is a, is a, is a good wheeze. Uh, and and it, in places it's that, that they pull it off and, and the rest of the time it's a sort of... It's a suggestion, you know, we get the idea and... The, and and the, and what's Bellage up to? She's got this nice, and these these guys move well. And this this guy at the front, this guy called Nigel Miles Thomas as Podovkin. There's Ray Knight, king of the extra agency, um, uh, and uh, and oh, and the and I'll talk about Nigel Miles Thomas when he comes back. Hold that thought. Um, when somebody listened to the the pilot of this, the first one I did, Anthony Townsend. Thank you, Anthony, and his friend. They were moving moving house said uh, I, I lost threads too easily so I'm trying not to um, but it's it's hard I'm watching it live in real time um, I, I like the sort of past that they give Kane and the and the the the, the, the guy the, the sculptor he has a he has a little bit of a sort of subplot in the uh, in the novel I recall oh the novel it was the closest I had been to actually being part of Doctor Who which was a which was oh it was beyond my wildest dreams i love the fact that ace has got the ladder that's brilliant she is gutsy the novel of this uh has etched into the ice uh walls uh, ah which was my friend andy holding who knew alistair pearson who did the covers and he and on the other side i think it's above the doctor's umbrella 
is TH, which is Toby Haydock, which is me, which was the only way, uh, sort of conduit I had to anything actually tangibly Doctor Who. Um, and, and apparently on, on later re-releases, the, 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 the artwork has been treated so that the, the, uh, the initials are less obvious. Although I have to say, in later novels, the initials weren't even etched into ice. They were just sort of splurged there. At least, at least in my day, they were subtle. Uh, but anyway, so yeah, if you, if you look on your novel and you see a TH etched into the ice, that is actually me. But uh, I love this scene and I love this guard. Uh, I mean, it's silly and it's comedic, but it's well judged. It's, it's, it's very funny. Um, Chris McDonnell does it very, very well. And you sort of think, oh, why haven't I seen him in much? Uh, what's it? It's because, and I was told this by a comic called Jim Taveray, uh, who'd done a lot of work in the States. And I then worked with him here when he was back. He's since been in a quite a serious car crash, Jim. He's a lovely guy. I hope he's okay. Um, and, and he said, oh, I'm mates with an actor out there. Because Jim had done a Harry Potter uh, and so then moved out to the States and, 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 and acts, you know, acts as, uh, on, on screen in the States as well as being a comic. Um, and he said, oh, and there's this mate of mine who's another expat actor. I think they all hang around together. And he did, he did a Doctor Who. Uh, he's called Chris McDonald. I went, ah, oh, that's what happened to the funny guard from episode two. So... Uh, he's actually had a, a a decent career doing sort of bits and bobs uh, in the states. So uh, I I did send I did I did send Sean Lyon at Gallifrey um, offer, offering to to put them in touch, but uh, but because uh, 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 because he's in LA, um, but I don't think that's happened uh, yet. Uh, uh, she's a certain t- type, isn't she, P- P- Patricia Quinn? Uh, who did she reminds me of somebody and I can't remember who she did just did then for a moment um, I love the furry dice that is a great touch that's exactly what my spaceship would look like I'm, I'm not allowed to use wide angles because um, I get into trouble if there's a mess and there's usually a mess and it's usually my fault so I would definitely have <laughs> oh and he's got I don't think I'd have the leopard skin they will have had great fun dressing the set um, but yeah, that scene with the guard and it's, you know, uh, uh, what is it, auxiliary uh, production, whatever it is, he says. Uh, it's very funny. Uh, and a sort of Mickey take of of too serious, a Mickey take of Doctor Who, the unfolding text, isn't it? Uh, uh, which was a very serious book, which was advertised a lot in Doctor Who magazine. And I never got because it was really expensive. Uh, but it seemed to be such an amazing thing. And it was actually lots of people be being a bit <laughs> being very serious about Doctor Who and examining it as you know the unfolding text it's, it's actually a very interesting uh, book once you've done a drama degree but if I bought it at the time it would have absolutely baffled me uh, and John Tullock one of the writers of that was rather famously pictured being uh, pulled from the wreckage of um, the 77 uh, tube bombings he, he recovered thank goodness but uh, I think it's a has, has had difficulties since, but um, but he was he was a he was a rather famous uh, picture of, of somebody being rescued. Um, the poor, the uh, it's rather sad. The poor old uh, the poor old sculptor, but that's I think that's ambitious, you know, to go well. We have this extra. He's not a, doesn't even get a credit. There's somebody behind them in the set. That oh no, that's the plot. Um, this is not. He does a good job. I like the way he because. 
he's close enough to grab them and or kill them but he Nigel Miles Thomas there he does a sort of uh, I am not quite human and I am thawing out a bit acting which which sells the fact that the two women are able to escape well done Nigel Miles Thomas who I believe this was his first television I only know that because he, uh, at this one convention one of two conventions I was at I think Sophie Aldred talked about the fact that it was her first telly and that uh, when she'd been sent to makeup she'd gone but I don't I don't have any makeup. I don't need makeup. Um, when, of course, everybody in those days would need would need makeup for to, for TV to sort of show up um, and to and, you know to, to to accentuate the right bits. And uh, apparently, Patricia Quinn went, "Oh, it's her first telly," and they were all quite surprised. But it was Nigel Miles Thomas's first telly as well. I don't know much, sadly, about Nigel Miles Thomas. I hope he's well and happy. Uh, and I think this was. Was this in the trailer? I th I think this scene was in the trailer again, because I, I I had I, I I taped the trailers and put them on the end of 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 the other tape, uh, so I had I time of the Rani and this on one videotape and Paradise Towers and Delta and the Bannermen on the other. What a dilemma, you know how because you could only fit seven episodes, so a four-parter and a three-parter. It was it was such a relief when subsequent seasons it went four three four three. Um, oh no, it went. Yeah, because this season it went four four three three, and that that was I'm sure I, I like to think John Nathan Turner went. The fans would like them to be in chronological order on their videotape collection. Such things were very important. And I like I, again Dominic Glynn, the chunkating chunkating. Um, that unfortunately that's a that's that's not a great angle because it's the one angle where you can see that Mel doesn't actually bump her head. Um, but of course. These days, you wouldn't have to shoot that in real time. Uh, you you could cheat it. You could also cheat it in the edit. You could do all sorts of things. I mean, you, yeah. Uh, but but it does allow for this. This is a great shot, seeing him through the stairs uh, and the chunkety chunkety music, and and I like the way the face has been made up to be all sort of frozen. Um, it's. Uh, I, I think the frozen mercenaries work work quite nicely, and, and very much helped by that that music. Um, but that was great. That was great shot through the stairs there. Um, but yeah, M Mel managed to knock herself unconscious whilst not hitting her head. Um, oh, doctor. Yeah, and. Now this is yes, this is a very, very much the image of what Doctor Who was was doing at this time, uh, making. I mean, you know, apart from those bits that we don't count where the Doctor kills things, the Doctor generally doesn't kill. But the, you know, there's there's that's very explicit there. There's the brilliant sniper scene in Happiness Patrol, uh, and this is interesting because these two look like they're getting a storyline that's uh, that's. Um, looks like it's going somewhere because you don't realize that because uh, these two are ostensibly ostensibly you know quite big guest stars so you expect them to to make it to episode three so i remember that being being quite a surprise um i really like tony Asoba. he's he's got a he's got a he's got a good quality as an actor uh and he's had a he's had a decent amount of work but um uh you know, then turns up in 
Kill the Moon and has about three lines. It's an, an actor's lot, isn't it? I have a long and illustrious career, but you're still, you know, later on having to go, mm, yeah, oh, well, a job's a job. And it's not, it's not a bad, by, by today's TV standards, as a, uh, one, it's good to get a job in TV anyway, and, 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 and it was certainly not a blink and you'll miss it. I just, I just rather hoped he'd have had more to do. And he did get, in the Radio Times, when it said guest stars, it said, um, uh, Hermione Norris, Tony a sober. So somebody in the Radio Times knew that a sober being there was was big news. But uh, he, he, he 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 turned out not to be long for his trip to the moon. And this is a really interesting this this and this Wizard of Oz thing with Ace is a is a is a nice attempt to sort of marry the sort of fairy tale with the the science fiction because obviously they're really wedded to their their science fiction. Um, hard sci-fi and their films and all of that so to, to give give her this sort of fairy tale backstory is a nice idea um and and to have her slightly damaged is really interesting and and i might talk about that when it's time to do curse of frenrick about um well i don't know when i'm going to do that but i remember my drama teacher at the time saying the idea that a lead character should say to somebody else you're an emotional cripple uh was 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 quite harsh was quite hard um and strong stuff uh, and and the whole thing of the doctor's journey with ace is it's a very interesting dynamic and not necessarily a comfortable one you know she's a she's a damaged delinquent teenager who's you know escaping from difficult things and 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 um but it's never over egged it's there lurking uh with without ever getting in the way of you know let's go come on let's go and have a sci-fi adventure which is exactly as it as it should be um so yeah crack hour having been nasty bad guy at the beginning is 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 now going oh well i've had a chat with magenta from the rocky horror show uh, i shall now try and kill my boss um, who's of course we've got Nosferatu the spaceship Kane is slumbering like a like a vampire um, so it all all sort of ties in uh, quite nicely um, and, and it is quite a sort of vampiric performance it is quite a cadaverous uh, he has he has quite a cadaverous thing going on does uh, does this cane and the the makeup helps to sell that that's that's nice the way he looks in into shot there uh and and this is yeah glitz going oh yeah this is this this is the reason this man is now a zombie is essentially because i sold him for not very much money um which which <laughs> Which is an odd way to try to get us to sympathise with Sabalom Glitz, uh, and especially in like, especially when it turns out that because of a bit of a quick rewrite that is very elegantly done in episode three, uh, Mel decides to go and stay with him. Uh, yes, for your first TV, Nigel Miles Thomas, you've done a good job here, as uh, it's I think it's hard to play uh, zombified uh, and. He, he he emerges uh without without embarrassment i would say it is a good good job and then the the 
Now, this is Leslie Meadows as the alien, and I was talking to somebody the other day, said it was designed... It was designed um, to be worn by a very tall actor, tall, thin actor, a bit like, um, you know, the alien in Aliens, an in Alien. Uh, but instead, John Nathan Turner's mate, Leslie Meadows, uh, which is, I guess, why he's got a bit of a tum there, um, who was a short, who was a short guy, and and John Nathan Turner, I think it's interesting. I mean, again, I was, I was, I jumped on the furious bandwagon because I was at the right age, so to do. Uh, you know, history tells us that Doctor Who wouldn't have lasted this long without John Nathan Turner. And a lot of the things that he did were very canny uh, and very uh, smart. But he also made mistakes, which Doctor Producer didn't. But um, but then getting your mate who's all, already been on holiday in Delta and the Bannermen. When we do Delta and the Bannermen, there's a character called Adlon who doesn't say a word, who is played and credited on screen, Leslie Meadows. And it's almost like John, John, John's... It's John, we need a part for John's mate. Um, we'll get to play Adlon. Who's Adlon? Just a... Doesn't do anything. <laughs> we'll, we'll make a guy called Adlon. Uh, uh, and uh, there's, is there a part for Leslie in this? No, well, give him the monster. But he's five foot Nothing. Uh, the monster's supposed to be seven foot. Doesn't matter. I want Leslie to do it. Um, <laughs> um, but as a, 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 my agent said to me when I first auditioned for the Royal Exchange Theatre, having for many years told me how cliquey they were, when I then got the job, she went, oh, that's excellent because they're very loyal. And you go, oh, yeah. <laughs> it depends what side of the fence you're on. And uh, Leslie Meadows there going, well, John's being very loyal. Oh, talking of the Royal Exchange Theatre, the person that cast me was an illustrious casting director called Sophie Marshall, who is the daughter of Daphne Oxenford, who is the archivist here, uh, who was a, a mighty fine actress, who I was going to say has appeared in New Doctor Who, but she was edited out of The Unicorn and the Wasp. Her last telly was as old Agatha Christie in The Unicorn and the Wasp and the scenes did not make it to broadcast. So, yeah, Tony Asoba may have only had a handful of lines in Kill the Moon, but at least he was still in it. Oh, as Mark Gatiss is... Uh, is, it Le is it Les McQueen? <laughs> it's a shit business. It, it can be a very, very cruel business and uh, it... it, it you know, long service does not stop you being prey to the misfortunes and indignities it foists upon you. Um, it was such a surprise. So Krakauer's dead, uh, and now Bellage is dead. But of course, because this has to be sustained, you don't get the you you don't get the 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 hiss of the ice. So it wasn't clear to me that she was she was dead, but she is dead. And Krakauer is dead. So there's two very promising supporting parts played by good actors. Um, I think Patricia Quinn's performance is quite odd, but uh, Tony Asoba's great. Um, and actually, I've, I've liked Patricia Quinn slightly better this time round. Um, uh, uh, but they're gone. Those characters are gone. So um, that, I remember that being quite, quite a surprise because I thought they'd have they'd have more of a part to play. Um, so yeah, it's it's. 
I wonder how it would have how it would have helped to have had a, a a taller monster. I think the design is is rather nice, and it's it's not unlike that of the alien. Oh, and this is a neat moment, of course. What a surprise! That's a, and that's a great plot surprise. Oh, the alien is the treasure. Great, um, and it's a sort of and the lighting's nice there, isn't it? Because they're being the, the dragon fire is is shining upon them. Um, oh. And I used to do this. I used to. I remember being in the kitchen garden doing this. I want. I, I was like playing up to. After three thousand years, the dragon fire shall be mine. Oh, that's that's why you get into acting to do to look at a camera and say, at last, after three thousand years, the dragon fire shall be mine. Um, glorious. Well, I enjoyed that uh, very much. Um, Patricia Quinn gets a single single caption. Ace is quite low down because she's not a regular yet. That was the way that they did it. Chris McDonnell in the States. Yeah, there we go. Um, so, so what was my... What was my favourite part of part two? Oh, well, it's the scene with the guard. I think it's very nicely judged. It's very nicely played. It's a bit daft, but uh, I forgive it. It's not embarrassing. It, it, it's played and pitched in the way that it was intended, uh, and it sits nicely within the action, doesn't outstay its welcome, and it's not done with too much of a nod or a wink. I, I think it's... Yeah, so Arnheim, isn't he? Arnheim, the... the Auxiliary performance codes guard, uh, and that that whole scene. I'm not just picking the performance, although he does play it well. I'm picking the the whole scene. So it's not me choosing an actor. Uh, oh, I was going to check what Andrew Cartman was going to choose, but he he, he he hasn't done it yet. Well, he he may well have chosen. He hasn't told me, so I have to go forwards in time to speak to Andrew Cartman on Zoom to see if he too has chosen Arnheim the guard and that scene with the Doctor. And so for episode two, now this was an embarrassment of riches. I could have chosen anything from the Dyson Glitz's spaceship to uh, the little subplots for something. Even the sculptor I could have chosen, because I like the fact that even an extra has a little bit of a tragic arc. He makes a thing and then gets killed. But I chose, in the end, I wonder if you all have chosen it, I chose... Arnheim, the funny guard, and his uh, and and the trouncing of him through um, the semiotic thickness of a performance text, which I just think okay. is brilliant. <laughs> we, are, we are on the same on there. I completely concur because again, this is this is Ian's gift for characterization, but it's also his gift for comedy because this guy is set up like you expect him to be a non-speaking guard, and you expect a really boring kind of piece of. A tiny piece of plot about how we get around the non-speaking guard, and the doctor instead decides to sort of double bluff and uh, blind him with science, and then Briggs does this magnificent thing that the guard has been desperate for, for some deep conversation, <laughs> and he's just he's so pleased, and everybody loved this, and in fact they needed they needed for him to go on some more, and we needed some more um, obscure um, technical. A blather, and so I just sat at my desk 
in Union House and I reached across the window so were there a bunch of books including a bunch of free books that John Nathan Turner got because they were Doctor Who related and there was this very uh, highfalutin analysis of Doctor Who which I I'd chuckled at before and I pull, I knew that it was full of, full of uh, thickets of crazily technical prose so I pulled that, that, that bit about the semiotic text I just lifted straight from a book about Doctor Who and when Briggs heard it uh, at a, at a, a run-through, he just burst into laughter. So that was, we sort of added a little bit more, but I just, I just love it. Uh, and it's, it's so very Ian, and also it's wonderful because it, that's where we begin to open up the possibilities of the mischief, the intellectual mischiefness, mischievousness of, of Sylvester, the Sylvester Doctor. <laughs> well, good. But um, I, I foolishly, I, sh I should have asked you what you'd chosen first because you could cheat now and go, that's what I was going to choose. But... Well, the thing is, I, the trouble is, I don't divide these up by episodes. So that was one of the things that was floating around. Right. You know, in the snow globe of my, my mind. Okay. Was that fantastic scene because it's it's so funny. And <laughs> it's it's so very Briggs. And it's also so unusual. It's very sophisticated in its humour. It's just it's just great. So that was up there. Okay, uh, so we... also I d I didn't know where the cliffhanger, you know the, the famous cliffhanger, cliffhanger. Is that Ep one or ep two? Is it ep two? Well, uh, what the 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 cliffhanger of the, the with, cliffhanger. with the umbrella? No, that was episode one. I'm afraid I I I, I did st struggle to rationalise the cliffhanger. Have you got something to say about that? About well, that, that was crucial because it's not my favourite moment, but it's a crucial moment to talk about because Ian and I are so fed up over the years about people banging on about that. So Ian's actually sent me through the original script. So you, we can see what's wrong. What happens is in the script is not that the doctor's walking along a gantry against a nice face. He's emerging from a tunnel so that there's no way forward. He's just, he's look, it's a sheer ice face that he has to climb. If he's, he's either going to have to go back or climb down the ice face. So he, he ends up trying to climb down the ice face and doing a cliffhanger because there was, there is no other way. There is no alternative, but that's the way it's physically shot makes no sense at all because he's just arbitrarily hanging off a uh off a railing but what i'll do is i'll send you that that i'll send oh, you what, I, what ian sent me <laughs> that, that fragment of script because it's it is a failure in the directing sorry chris clough but you know somebody looked at the script and thought well we can't do it like that so we're going to do this other thing without thinking this other thing makes no sense yeah, maybe if they're doing it on Blu-ray, they could CGI in a shelf uh, just below that he's crawling to try and get to or something. Uh, but even then, uh, why is he... Why is he crawling he, down, yeah. Instead of continuing uh, uh, horizontally. But yeah. it, in the script, it, it did make sense. And I'll send you the script so you can see that. And so Ian and I are both a little knocked about. Because people are right, it makes no sense at all. But maybe it did make sense. It made sense on paper and somewhere between there and the screen. It's actually a lovely image. That that final shot is great. It's just the entire audience is going, but I still don't know why he's done that. Exactly. <laughs> Which is the sort of question that it's crucial for directors to always ask themselves, what is the meaning of what I'm putting on the screen? But be, because of the atomizing effect of the way you shoot things out of sequence, broken up into short scenes, it is possible to just lose track of the overall meaning and overall arc of things which is why it's so crucial for a director to keep an eye on. Well, I'm back, not from outer space, just from the future. Um, so you now have seen what Andrew Cartmel chose and whether he and I were in accord. As I record this, I have no idea. It's curious. Um, time can do strange things 
For example, you can wait for something for 3,000 years and not bother to find out whether your home planet's been destroyed or not. But uh, uh, So I'm just going to check that now so I don't get any nasty surprises. Uh, and I will see you lot uh, for part three. But that was it for Dragonfire part two. At last, after 3,000 years, I get to look into camera and do the end of an episode. Thank you so much for listening to Happy Times and Places, which is presented by me, Toby Haydoke. My special guest this time around is Andrew Cartmel, who can be found on Twitter at Andrew Cartmel and online at venusianfrogbroth.blogspot.com. Making ice sculptures with me in Patreonville are Ruben Herfindahl, Mark Owen, Peter Harness, Rob Leonard, Stephen Moffat, Richard Straw, Jenny at Bluebox99, Paul Cook, Peter Crocker, Rob Dawson, John Deere, Chris Dunford-Kelk, Siobhan Galichon, Ian Key, Joe Llewellyn, Darren Mackay, Barry Platt, Luke Atkins, Peter Adamson, Will Brooks, Peter Burns, Rick Byatt, Paul Carnahan, Paul Carrington, Andy Case, Richard Chalk, John Curley and Mark Dakin. The music for this podcast is by Dave Gates and the artwork by Dylan Patterson. If you want to uncover any more treasure like this, but early, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash Toby Haydock. There are also exclusive releases just for you there, and it's a one-size-fits-all kind of model, but there are various tiers with tiny little bonuses. Uh, if you would prefer to just give a one-off donation in order to support these podcasts, you can do that at ko-fi.com forward slash Toby Haydock. But I know that times are tough and I know that not everybody can or indeed wants to. And that's absolutely fine. I am grateful to you just for listening. But you know what you can do for free? You could go to your podcast outlet and rate this five stars and leave a glowing review. And that would really help with my algorithms. And they always need a bit of a thaw at this time of year. These podcasts have their own Twitter feed at Haydock Podcasts. And you can also find things on my website, www.tobyhaydoke.com, and my personal Twitter is at tobyhaydoke. Twitch.tv forward slash excess malarkey every Tuesday night at 8pm has live comedy with me and four special comedy guests from around the world. Well, until about July the 13th, and then the show will be back live at the Breadshed in Manchester. But the Twitch channel will still stay up with the various archive treats and a sign of what we've been doing throughout lockdown to bring good value, in fact free entertainment, from all across the comedy sphere. (laughs) 